urban and Māori. They had left everything that they knew, so they were stuck in these cities. Today, 85% of us live in urban places. Something about Wellington draws me in. I am a city girl. They had to go to the city because they were shifted there. In this concrete jungle, in the urban sprawl, what is it that keeps us grounded? My tupuna have been thriving here for many generations. I'm Māori wherever I go. My name is Kahukutia and this is He Kākanoa Hau, weaving together strands of connection for Māori in the city. I grew up in Waimana, one of the valleys on the northern side of Te Urewera. I am who I am today because I grew up beneath my Mona, because I know my tuhoitana. Almost five years ago, I came to Wellington, Te Whanganui Atara, to study. I've been here ever since. In the first two episodes, we explored the city as a non-Indigenous space, disconnected from home, where you had to go looking for your sense of Māoritanga. But I can't help but wonder if this disconnected place might also help someone to explore other aspects of their identity. In this episode, we're going to go meet two wahine Māori who are trans, one older, one younger. And we're going to explore whether Wellington can provide a safe haven to decolonise sexuality and gender. There are a lot of colourful stories to be told in this city about gay clubs, topless bars, drag queens and pride. Off the top of my head, I can name Georgina Bayer, the first openly trans mayor in the world, and entertainer Carmen Rupe as two very significant figures in Wellington's history. They were trans and Māori. So is Kayla Rian. I have a heritage. I have a culture. And just because I'm trans does not mean that I do not have feelings about where I come from. Kayla first came to Wellington in the 70s. I met her a few months ago at her flat in Te Aro, where she agreed to tell me some of her stories about this city. Kayla is incredibly tall. She wears a huge ponamu toki around her neck. I can feel in her eyes that she'd be able to see through any facade I might put up. In fact, she could probably read my mind if she wanted to. She tells me to meet her at one of her favourite cafes, where she loves both the coffee... You know how you can sit and have a coffee and it just centres you? That's why I come here. ...and the barista. Apart from the fact he's cute as hell. (laughs) In my four years here, I feel I've gained a pretty good perspective of Wellington. I know the streets, I know some of the history. But meeting Kayla, I'm reminded that I'm pretty much a baby. This city has been Kayla's stomping ground since long before I was born. Back when she came to find work as a trans woman, jobs were pretty much impossible to come by. Well, back then, the only kind of work we could get was sex work. Kayla is one of the founding members of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. NZPC did a lot of the groundwork to push for the Prostitution Reform Act. This act made New Zealand the first country in the world to decriminalise sex work. And actually, to this day, only a small number of other countries have followed suit. They did this to make Wellington a safer place to be for sex workers. And while Kayla does have some bad memories here, she also has a lot of really good ones. I'll show you a few of my favourite areas. A lot of those good memories happened on Marion Street, where she's going to take me next. Famous Marion Street. We had our own environment here. Mm. Nightclubs, music coming out. Our girls would stand here, they'd sing, dance, they'd do poi. 
the clientele enjoyed it, even passers-by enjoyed it. People will walk past and they knew that if they saw us out here, they'd have a sense of safety. Yeah. And I used to work outside here. I worked everywhere, basically. Working as a sex worker in this area, what was your favourite bit? Money. <laughs> <laughs> no, company. Yeah. Working out here, we had family. All of the sex workers were family. Yeah. So, when we went out, it was like meeting your sisters. You stopped, you talked about what you did, what you're going to do, what you think you want to do. Yeah. And then you can go make your money, go out socialise. Sex work was just like a minor part of it. Mm. It's just like a great big hurry all the time. Yeah. Wellington today has this really strong image of being a creative city, where people are free to express their identities in whatever way they want. After walking the streets with Kayla, it's pretty clear to me that we have that image because of people like her, who had to fight once upon a time just to be themselves. <coughs> Are you getting a bit cold? No. Okay. I was born in Taranaki life. <laughs> we head back to Kayla's whare so that we can have a deeper corridor away from the Wellington wind. Kayla was born in New Plymouth, the ninth child in a whanau of 11. Not long after, her whanau moved to Tawa. When I asked her if she was raised in her culture, she said... No. We had like fry bread, boil ups and all that every Sunday. We had hangies and stuff. That's the extent of it. Cultural events and stuff were more or less non-existent. Mm. And it was kind of frowned upon by society when they saw, oh, look at that bunch of Maoris. When I was growing up, I was not permitted to learn about my Maori history. My father refused to teach me how to speak Maori. He didn't speak much about my grandparents and that. Was the reason that he didn't teach you because of their upbringing? Yeah, yeah, it was. Back then, they were disciplined for speaking their own language. Kayla had a pretty hard upbringing, indicative of a time in history where there was pretty much nothing in the way of visibility or acceptance for being trans. It's the kind of upbringing that made her the hard lady she is today. OK, when I was a young child, when I was about 10, 11, I ended up being fungied by the neighbour across the road from my own parents' house. Three years I stayed there, and I used to sit there on the... Sorry. I used to sit on the curb and watch across the road as my family got in the car and went off on the picnic, staring at me, not even asking if I wanted to go, I knew that I was different and whatever I did would reflect on the family. So I made the choice to move away, live my life, and I changed my name so whatever I did in my life did not reflect back on the family name. When I moved from small town into the city, I got the sense of my own freedom, my own life. It's part of my transition and realised that there's a lot more Māori trains around and then it just builds up your own confidence to continue being trains and not giving in because mm. there used to be a high suicide rate. I mean, people call me tough as nails at times. And it's like, well, hello, look at my life. What, do you, what the hell do you think?
even today, there is very little in the way of research and statistics for trans mental health. Our next census will be the first to even consider collecting information about gender identities outside of the binary. The 2012 New Zealand Adolescent Health Survey says that for trans teens, depression rates are around 40%. Nearly half had self-harmed in the previous 12 months, and 20% had attempted suicide. I suspect we've come far from the time of Kayla's youth, and even if there is still a long way to go, it is safer to be trans today because of what Kayla's generation fought for. It felt important, though, to talk to someone of my own generation who can compare what it's like to be Māori and trans today. Kia ora. Kia ora, It didn't take me long to find someone. It only takes a few degrees of connection to know all the Māoris in town. Nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you Thank too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my first time meeting Ariki Brightwell, kanohi ki te kanohi. But before this point, I'd already heard yeah, yeah. heaps about her. Want to come and check yeah, your face out? that's awesome. Kā pai, Ariki is an artist. She's a kaihotsu for the waka that live on the waterfront, taking people out into the harbour and teaching them the history of Te Atiawa, that's the mana whenua in the city. The first time I ever saw her was at an alien weaponry concert, where she was the only wahine running into a wall of death, her long black hair flying behind her, her trusty kete on her back. We have other studio spaces around, but this one's my one. If you want to come in, it's nice and cosy. Kia ora. We're meeting her at her studio, which is one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen. Oh my gosh. It's filled with old trinkets and pot plants. There's a rowing boat hanging from the ceiling and a rock climbing wall in the corner. When we walk in, Ariki shows us one of her prized possessions, her bright yellow scooter. Ariki herself is wearing red cowboy boots and a white leather jacket, which you'll hear squeak when she talks. She's been here in Wellington since 2007. On her father's side, she whakapapa's back to Gisborne. And on her mother's, she traces all the way back to Tahiti. Tahiti is an extremely strong link to Māori. Most of our waka come from Tahiti. There is a harbour in Tahiti, in a place called Papara, called Utere. Utere. And then the waka is Nukutere. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. And so when my mother and father met, they kind of re-established a link there. They met in Tahiti where Ariki's father was carving a waka. Our taha Māori was now re-emerging and re-linked with our taha mai Hawaiki. That's contributed to, I guess, me as an individual in terms of my confidence, how proud I am of my people, my family, our culture. And it's really empowered me to be the person I am. Your taha Māori and your taha Pacifica, like, was it always something you were proud of and felt connected to? To be honest, no. I was a child that I think a lot was put on me. Because I, I was the pipi, you know, born a tani, you know, to be honest. Um, I was looked at as the legacy of, of the whānau as well. And there was a lot of pressure on me as a child. It was a very hard atmosphere to be in. That had a huge effect on me. And it actually made me want to distance myself from my culture and who I was. Being a 90s kid in Te Tairawhiti, Ariki wasn't brought up in a time or place where diverse genders and sexualities were ever discussed openly. In Gisborne, uh, much as I love my hometown, you know, there wasn't much there. Mm. Plenty of Māori, plenty of us, plenty of te reo in our history, but I, never, I didn't see that. And I was bullied at school because of I was different, you know, I didn't behave like all the boys did. I just kind of didn't click or bond with anyone, you know. And 
you'd get beaten up, <laughs> you know, if you were called out on things like that. And my parents didn't know a thing and they didn't talk about it at all. It was until the internet came, you know, dial up, <laughs> that I started to type in some kupu, like gender and things, you know, because I just felt weird. I just felt like something wasn't quite right about me in terms of how I felt in my own shoes. I was terrified to let anyone know. So I got to thank my parents though, because they're the ones that, that forced me to go to Wellington. They said, like your brother, you're going to Wellington, you're going to study and get a degree. I'm like, okay. Ariki moved to Wellington when she was only 18 and got a Bachelor of Design at Massey University. But in terms of finding herself... It wasn't until I was about 23 that I kind of realised something needed to change or else I would be not in this world anymore. And from that, with the friends I've made here and the family I've made here, and Wellington being known for its history of diversity and acceptance, especially from our wahine from the 70s and 80s, Susie Witoko, Carmen Rupe, Dana Namiko, all those wahine I didn't know at the time, and they're the ones that were kind of my guides, you know, my elders. Mm. And then from that generation, throughout the 90s, it comes me. Unfortunately, I don't think most of these wahine that Ariki mentions are really remembered or known today in Wellington. But if you're walking down Cuba Street, look up at the pedestrian lights and you'll notice that the green walking man has been replaced with a drag queen. That's to honour probably the most well-known Māori drag queen of all time, Carmen Rupe. Carmen at different points in her life was a performer, a nurse, a brothel keeper, activist. She even campaigned to be mayor of Wellington in 1977. Here's Carmen appearing in the 1975 television programme, The Tonight Show. She's interviewed by David Marnie. You can imagine in my years of school in the 40s, or they really thought that I was strange and came from another planet. What about your family? How did they react to you? My mother and grandparents, who we all lived with, didn't care whether you were a bad person or you came from an unwanted home, whoever you are. There was always love in our family, and we believed in live and let live. And this has carried on ever since? That's right, all for the years. The support from her whanau was huge for Carmen and made some of the transphobia that she faced more bearable. I think that's how I've survived all through the years. I've had lots of nasty people write to me or ring me up or people pass hold remarks to my own family about me, but my family certainly put them in their place. As I said, there's a lot of cruel people around, but they don't worry me at all because they don't pay my rent and I'm happy the way I am and very pleased about it all. You're a very successful businesswoman. Tony, you've got two nightclubs, a coffee bar and the famous balcony. That's right. It was here, at the famous balcony, that Kayla first met Carmen, who was calling down to Kayla on the street as she walked past. And she goes, Hi there, young person. Would you like to come in? I was going, Look at her and I was like, Oh, oh I've got to go home. Are you sure? This is beautiful people inside that place. I was thinking, oh, I'm freaking come back this way. Because she could see in me what I couldn't. For Kayla, this was her first encounter with a whole new kind of community. Within a large and busy city, she found a place where she could be trans, where she could be wahine, where she could be Māori. Being here in Wellington, we maintain who we are. We maintain our culture. But we blend with what's going around in society. I was a member of a Kapaka group and we do openings for like Anamarae, schools, parliament, functions, whatever. It's become a norm in like big cities. That's why I like big cities. Mm. 
For Ariki, it was kind of the same thing. Like Kayla, she had to find her place to stand, where she could be all the parts of who she is. And that took time. Problem with the city is that, you know, it can absorb you, you assimilate. And a consequence of that can be you lose your connection with your whenua and your people. And so you do not focus anymore on your real, your whakapapa or things like that. That individual, whatever they get thrown into, they got to kind of try finding it on their own. It wasn't until I left Te Ranganui Akewa when I came to Te Whanganui Atara is when I had the space to breathe and to find myself. So it wasn't just by choice, oh, now I wanted to find my Māori side. Something just woke up inside of me and I realised I found my place, I found who I am. I'm a very strong believer that a person's culture, irregardless of your background or your birthplace, shouldn't that be brought forward so that you've got a sense of pride for where you come from, where you belong, and where you're going. That kind of what you're saying now, did you have to go on a journey to I went learn on a journey that? and I learned all that stuff. Kayla tells me a special story, one that helped her understand who she was and her place in Te Ao Māori. It begins with her sister arriving from Australia and taking her on a spontaneous trip to visit her maunga, Taranaki, at five in the morning. Yeah, she kidnapped me. She says, you got gumbas? I says, get real. <laughs> got heels. <laughs> it was a trip made up the maunga in darkness. Kayla, her sister, and a tohunga from the rohe. Even though there was no light, Kayla says that the path up the mountain seemed obvious to her that morning. She knew instinctively where to go. I thought I was being bold as brass, walked up the path, went to go into the trail. It was pitch black. It was black than black leather. So I took a step back. Tohunga and my sister come up and I said, hang on a minute. And they go, what? I said, oh, there's a mist there. And it was like a torchlight in fog right in front of my face. And I could swear I saw my father's face. It was beautiful and peaceful. In the Māori culture, when they say that, like, we're all wairua, we inhabit a physical form, but when we pass on, we become wairua again and we're reborn. That's one belief. But on that mountain, you actually get a sense of it. It's an eye-opening experience. What did that actually feel like? What scared it... the shit out of me. <laughs> And I'm a big person, but yes, it does. It's clear to me that maybe the deepest connection Kayla has to her Māori tanga is her spirituality, an instinctive understanding and sensitivity to the wairua that flows all throughout the world. And I'm pretty sure that's why I think she could read my mind. But she wasn't taught that. Kayla had to find a lot of this out on her own. I learnt my whakapaa myself. I didn't just put names on paper. I went into the lives of people and found out who was who. Today, a lot of our people think that takatāpuitanga is a new thing, that it's modern. This whakaro, though, is a colonised one. It was brought by the missionaries. Prior to that, Māori actively explored many genders and sexualities. There's something Ariki knows all about. 
our people have always experimented or dived into our sexuality. That's one of the main parts of our culture, you know, it's displayed on our carvings, you know. And there were, there were carvings that depicted same-sex relationships and stories, but many of those were destroyed after, you know, missionaries arrived and, and really started to change things in terms of how the West would perceive and see what a relationship is and how people should bond with one another. So mm. we came from Hawaii, and if you look at our people from Hawaii, even though the heavy presence in the islands, you know, in terms of uh, religion is quite strong, you know, you still have the Whawhafine, you know, you still have the Whakawahine from the Cook Islands, you have the Rerei from Tahiti, they're still there and acknowledged. And so we had that too. And we've never lost it, it's just that it's been in the dark for a long time. And I see it coming back today, especially with the formation of the Takatapui and the Takatapui Hui by our rangatira from the 70s and 80s. So where in Te Ao Māori can we find our Takatapui whānau? Well, they have a place, they've always have had a place. You go to any marae, you see one of us, whakawahine, we're in the kitchen. We're with the aunties. We are workers. We don't argue about things on a marae or what have you. We get up and we do it. And we're respected for it. Since I've been in Wellington, I have worked on eight marae as sole share. And I don't get questioned. I imagine it must still be difficult to be trans and Māori. The gender binary, tāne and wahine, is strong within our culture. I wonder whether Ariki's role in her whānau changed after she transitioned. Yeah, it did change how I'm seen in the whānau, yes, absolutely. You know, because that's, that's how it, that's the way it is. But I still am expected to uphold a few things, especially the family legacy, which I accept. And because I'm now, you know, strong on my own two feet, and take on that challenge and, yeah, add that to who I am. Mm. Such as my father wanted to teach me how to carve, because that's mm. often traditionally reserved for me. Mm. But he still wants to show me those techniques, especially mm. with the toki, mm. yeah, which I want to take in. And would that make you the first wahine to take up the whakaero tradition in your whānau? Yes, yes, actually it would, mm. it would. Yeah, essentially... I would be the first, first wahine. in my family, yeah. Mm. I would be the first wahine in my family, which would really be quite awesome. Yeah. And the first takotapui. Yeah. Hell yeah! yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, what about with traditional, like traditionally female roles, such as the karanga, would those ever be things that you can take on? Absolutely, absolutely. And I've kind of been delving into it, but it's always been a goal of mine. So I really want to um, learn the tikanga of wahine in, in a formal setting and uphold those rules as well, to, as traditionally as possible, because I see myself as such. Growing up in a small town, I think everyone wants to get out by the age of 18. I certainly did. I scrambled. I was bright-eyed and enthusiastic, and in the city, I couldn't believe that there were things to do after 8pm. But the more time I spend here, honestly, the more I get tired. For me, it's so hard being away from home and I miss it so much. I definitely can't imagine being here as long as Kayla has. But then again, my whakapapa is elsewhere. Kayla is right where she's meant to be. Something about Wellington draws me in every single time. I've lived in Auckland, Hokitika, Christchurch, Masterton, but it's always Wellington that draws me back in. I think it's the people, 
and I also found out that like where I was from, my tribe is one of the dominant tribes in Wellington. And that just gives me a sense of pride and it's like, well, I'm going to be where I know I belong. For Ariki, Wellington is now her Tūranga Waiwai as well. I consider myself now from Te Whanganui Atara, and this is my place that I stand. Tūranganui Akiwa is also my place, which is my homeland, but I consider Wellington now my new home. Takatāpuitanga was squashed in Aotearoa with the arrival of missionaries. It was then that our people turned to these colonised ideas of marriage, of gender, of sexuality. But our takatāpui whānau have always been there, washing the dishes in the kitchen, helping the aunties, standing in the wings. How interesting that this part of te ao Māori is being decolonised in the city, which you would think is one of the most colonised places to be. That's where people like Ariki and Kayla are returning to the words and beliefs of our ancestors, where they could learn what it means to be whakawahine, what it means to be wahine, what it means to be takatāpui, away from the pressure of whānau. Next episode, we're heading up to Tamaki Makoto, Tamaki Hiringawaka, that's Auckland City. Because I think when we talk about Māori in the city, we're assuming they're away from home, and that's what we've explored so far. But what if the city is land that your ancestors have been living on for hundreds of years? All of our cities in this country have been designed in a way to destroy us. Our very existence is active resistance. For Katau Mai Anō, for episode four, Mana Whenua. He Kākanoa Ho is written, researched and hosted by me, Kahukutia. Produced by Francis Morden. Melody Thomas is the editor and production and script consultant. The theme music Rito is composed and performed by Geneva Alexander Masters. Additional music by Maratike, Electric Wire Hustle and Asia. Artwork by Huriana Kopeke Teaho. Mark Chesterman is the series engineer and Ursula Grace is the executive producer. Archival sound recording in this series is from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision, and it's all made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. <laughs>